Beloved, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, or if you don't have a Bible with you, take one from the pew, please, and join me in Luke 13 once more, where we see Jesus this morning, and what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus teaching, we see Jesus, (coughs) pardon me, communicating the Word of God, and we have been seeing this, it is a reminder to us, beloved, uh, that what we are doing right here, right now, is so important. Um, So as we observe the word of Christ, I pray, of course, that we might hear with ears to hear, that we might listen with our minds and with our hearts and ultimately be changed by the power of God. Our text is going to be verses 18 through 21. Let's read it and then we'll pray. This is what it says. It says, So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I... What To what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour, until it was all leavened. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, This morning, we seek to know better what your kingdom is like. As we do that, help us ultimately to remember who the king is. It is you, it is your son, even more directly, Jesus Christ. So, our wills must be subservient to yours. Our hopes, our wishes, our desires, our preferences, our loves, our hates, our frustrations... We've got to surrender them to you. As Paul wrote, as your spirit inspired, our ambition must be quite simply to please you in all respects. As we have sung this morning, you are worthy. You are holy. And you have bestowed upon those whom you call your children immeasurable mercy the forgiveness of our sins, immeasurable grace, the gift of eternal life, the gift of Christ's own righteousness. So as we then listen to your voice again through your word, I pray not one of us would be able to leave here anything less than in awe of your glory. May that be done according to your word. We ask this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. When I was in school, one of my favorite subjects was history. I've always loved history. As a Christian and as a pastor now, it's church history, which uh, is is a natural bent for me. Um, But as an American, it's always been also U.S. history. Um, You know, I'm one of those nerds who can tell you the order of the presidents and the years they were in office. I'm kind of a geek like that. But uh, when we're talking about world history, when we think about it, it's often we we tend to uh, compartmentalize history by powers, the powers that be. Um, Even in the Bible, it's, it's sometimes like that. We have the Egyptians who have their moment in the sun. We've got the 
Babylonians, we've got the Persians, and even others like the Greeks and the Romans that are also more well-known in general history. But you might be surprised to know that it's not Rome, but the Mongolian Empire under the rule of Genghis Khan that conquered more land than any other empire in all of history. We think of the Roman Empire as the, the greatest of the earthly empires, and it really was if you want to quantify everything that goes into being an empire. But it was the Mongols who ruled from the very eastern tip of Asia in the Pacific Ocean to all the way into all over Asia. They, they ruled in the 14th century and 15th century. and It wasn't until 1480 that a man by the name of Ivan III led the Rus people to expel the Mongols from their land. It was the first time they were really repelled in any sense. And it, what it did is it brought an end to the increase of that kingdom and really formed for the first time what we now know to be Russia. And not Russia as we know it. Russia was not much more then than a small, meager, kind of backwards medieval nation-state with a little land and not a lot of power. All of that changed, though, when Ivan IV, better known in history as Ivan the Terrible, took power in 1547 at age 16. <clears throat> he took the title of Tsar and expanded Russia to the tune of 50 square miles a day. And he, what he did is he turned this small little nation state into a billion acre empire. And like the kingdom it first expelled, Russia would eventually stretch all over Asia from Eastern Europe across the Bering Strait into North America and what we know today as Alaska. The point being that from obscure, small, insignificant, backwards beginnings, the nation grew into a powerful, expansive empire dominating much of the world in the 20th century and remaining a formidable power today. What was once a small, powerless entity is now huge and mighty, much like the bear that often symbolizes that nation. With that in mind, this morning in Luke 13, we have come suddenly to Jesus teaching in two short parables. We left off with him in the synagogue last week, freeing a woman from an affliction by an evil spirit. For 18 years, she had been doubled over and unable to straighten up. <clears throat> and Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. And if you recall, it was the Sabbath. It was the fact that it was on the Sabbath that drew the ire of the synagogue official. And Jesus addressed the hypocrisy of anyone who would be so tied to man-made rules and man-made regulations and man-made traditions so as to prevent the work of God's saving grace and mercy even on the Sabbath day. Well, when we come to what we've just read, 18 through 21, it's not clear rather Jesus is still in the synagogue or if it's sometime after that. I tend to think it was sometime after that. But what is clear is that the Holy Spirit has placed these four verses right where they are, right here, right after Jesus castigates hypocritical religion. Right after another section of Scripture where Jesus is tearing down the kingdoms that men have erected in their own hearts and He seeks to replace those kingdoms with the only one that matters and it's His. So who is the King of your life this morning, beloved? What 
is the kingdom of God like, Jesus asked. And to what shall I compare it? And humanly speaking, when we hear that question, if we're thinking in human terms, if we're thinking human thoughts, we expect Jesus to then compare it to something glorious, something unimaginable, something with splendor, something worthy of the kingdom of God. Maybe precious jewels. And to be sure, the new heaven and the new earth are spoken of in terms of jewels like gold and diamonds and stuff in Revelation. But here, now, in Luke 13, it is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed. A mustard seed. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus said, yes. How so? Well, Jesus kind of asked a double question here to get the people in a teachable spirit. And now he's going to give them the answer. And when we look at this brief parable, there are four things going on in this parable that teach us about what the kingdom of God is like. And the first thing is this, and I want this to be an encouragement to us this morning, is a small beginning. The kingdom of God has a small beginning. You see, the mustard seed was very well known to anyone in Israel. It was very common in Israel. It was the smallest seed they knew of. It was the smallest, it was was about the size of a single grain of sand in the palm of your hand. So what Jesus is doing here, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He is emphasizing the smallness of the kingdom of God. The smallness. You think about it like this. For three years, Jesus walked to this earth. For three years in active ministry. For three years, Jesus preached. And He preached. And He preached. And He cast out demons. And He cleansed lepers. And He healed the sick. And He, 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 he did all, all kinds of things. He made the lame to walk. He made the blind to see. He even raised the dead. For three years he did all these things, unequivocally demonstrating the truthfulness of his message about himself by the power that he displayed. And for all that Jesus did, for all that Jesus said, for all of that time, for all that he demonstrated unequivocally, do you recall how many faithful followers he had when he ascended back into heaven? 120. 120. For all Jesus did, for all He taught, 120. That's a very small beginning. The church's beginning was not altogether different from Jesus' own entrance into the world. Jesus didn't enter with splendor. He entered in a manger. Without riches, without fame, without pageantry due a king, without an army fit for a king, without any earthly privileges, without any earthly power, And then we think about when he grew up and when he he started his ministry, who did Jesus surround himself with? Was it the best and the brightest? No, it was 12 men who were among the least likely people in the world to shape the culture. 12 men who weren't going to shape society, change minds. These 12 men weren't going to change the religious landscape of Israel. They weren't going to do anything in the world. They were small in number. They were small in prestige. They were small in influence. And in fact, in Luke 22, Jesus calls them 
my little flock. That's not exactly the kind of description you think you would hear for 12 men who were going to be the foundation of your church, and yet that's what Jesus called them. They were small, period. And that is the way God likes to work. You know, size matters. That's just a mantra of in all things today, it seems. But that's the way God likes to work. Who does He use? Who does God save? In 1 Corinthians 1, we're told it's not many mighty. It's not many noble. <clears throat> God often starts small so that His glory will be made known so that we might know that He is God. When God created the world, He did not create a large city with millions of people in it. What did He do? He created one man, he created one woman, and he put them in a garden. After the flood, God started again with what? One man, Noah, and his family. Eight people all together. Small. And then, when God started his chosen nation, the nation of Israel, yeah, he didn't pick the most powerful nation in the world and say, you're my nation. In fact, he started with one man, Abraham. And his aging wife, Sarah. And now he is starting with a mustard seed. With a small group of twelve plus others in order to bring glory to his name. Great things come about, beloved, this morning from small beginnings. A second thing we see about the kingdom of God from the mustard seed is prolific growth. Prolific growth. The mustard seed is sown and it goes into the ground and then it grows up. When Jesus began his public ministry, he didn't say, I'm going to base myself in Capernaum and all the people are going to come to me and that's how it's going to be. He didn't sit still, did he? Events transpired. People were changed. He went to all the villages and cities. He went to where... He could find people. And when the disciples and the other followers of Jesus had the Holy Spirit come upon them, the church then did not remain stagnant. It was alive and so it went places. It went out and it grew as a result of that. Whatever is alive and grows bears fruit and it bore fruit. And Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And right from the start, his words were shown to be true. On Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the number. Not long after that, we're told that there were 5,000 men. That does not count the women and children. So from a small beginning, a small group of people. And by the way, these people weren't just professing to be Christians. You You didn't just get to profess to be a Christian in those days and then get to live life your own way. These people were not just professing belief in Jesus. These were people who had genuinely repented of their sins. And they had entrusted all that they were, all of their ambitions, all of their desires, all of their possessions, all of their hopes, all to Jesus Christ. From a small group, God brought about this prolific exponential Growth And the church went from Jerusalem to Antioch and to Ephesus and to Philippi and to Corinth and to Thessalonica and to Rome and Europe and Asia Minor and North America and South America and all beyond. 
The mustard seed is small, but there is prolific growth, beloved, such that the birds of the air nest in its branches. So it is with the kingdom of God. The third thing we see is large size. A large size. You know, a few years ago, (coughs) Joshua was in preschool, and he brought home these sunflower seeds. And neither of my thumbs are green, so I was just hoping something sprouted. We put them in a, the, the house we lived in in Kentucky at the time had this gated garden in the very back of the yard. It was perfect for doing this. And we actually managed to grow a few vegetables without killing ourselves or the vegetables. And we, we, we planted the must, the, uh, not the mustard, the sunflower seeds there. And so I'm just saying something sprout, something that doesn't look like a weed. And, well, what happened was this thing grew to be over 10 feet tall. And it was probably about 13, 15 feet tall, actually, higher than a basketball goal. And the, the sunflower itself, the, 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 the bloom, the brown part in the middle was bigger than a basketball. It was the most amazing thing I personally had ever done as far as growing something. Not that I did anything but put it in the ground, but you get my point. I was very proud of myself, and we were all very happy with it. The point being, something pretty small became really big and surpassed our expectations. And that's the mustard seed starts small. It, 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 it grows, but it, it, it actually it became larger than all the other plants of the Middle Eastern garden. The smallest seed became the largest of all the plants. Twice the height of a man, sometimes 15 feet high like a, <coughs> like a, like a sunflower. And likewise, that's the point Jesus is making here. The kingdom of God grows and grows and grows, and against all earthly odds, it continues to expand to this day in the world. And it may not be in every nook and cranny of the globe yet. Not every people group has been reached. Not every people group has been reached with the gospel, but it is worldwide. And there's no other religion in the world that has grown like Christianity. There's no other faith where parents are willing to put their children on a plane to the other side of the planet and not to bomb buildings and not to kill people, but to bring the truth of the gospel of eternal life at the risk of their own death. There's nothing like it in the world. 2,000 years after the fact, you and I this morning have an advantage over the first disciples because we can look back over history and see just how true what Jesus said here has been. The kingdom of God has small beginnings, prolific growth, large size, and it's not done yet. There's an extensive, the fourth thing, an extensive influence takes place. An extensive influence. Look again at verse 19. The mustard seed, it grows so large, it develops large branches and birds of the air nest under its shade. It benefits creatures beyond the one who sowed the seed. Beyond the, the, it benefits things that are not part of the plant itself. It extends to the birds of the air. The kingdom of God is the same way. It has extensive influence beyond itself. We think about church. We think about the meeting of the people of God. Gatherings of believers. And there are almost always some who do not believe the gospel. 
It's possible even this morning among us, there are some here who do not really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until Jesus raptures His church, that is going to be the case. Believers are going to be mixed with unbelievers in this world. Even in churches. And I could, I could not be coughing this morning. I could have my full voice and I could be the most captivating speaker. And I could be just giving you the boldest, clearest, possible, purest message. Proclaiming the word of God to you this morning and it wouldn't change anything. Because slaves are not greater than their master. And even our master, among his twelve, one was a devil. There will always be a mixture of believers and unbelievers. By the way, that's why I will always preach the gospel, even to our own church membership, because there will always be those who fly in through our doors and rest on our branches and enjoy our shade, and we thank God for the ability to minister to anyone who comes to Bethlehem Baptist Church. We want you to hear the gospel. I want you to hear the gospel. I'm going to preach the gospel. Because as the birds come, by the grace of God, they can enjoy the shade. The point is, there's a blessing for unbelievers when they come amidst the believers in the church. Among those in whom the Holy Spirit resides. And as the kingdom advances and grows, it's the greatest blessing upon the world, even for unbelievers. Because because of the influence of biblical Christianity... There are a lot of things in this world that wouldn't be the case. There are just laws. There is hard work. There is economic growth. There are family values. There are, is better education. Human dignity is preserved. The sanctity of life is affirmed. There are adoption services. There is good music. There is good arts. There are better neighborhoods. There is respect for authority. And the list goes on. And yes, I know that as I say these things, I know as well as anyone that many of these things we... We, we, we treasure seem to be crumbling among us, but that doesn't prove the Bible wrong. It actually proves the Bible right because we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world where our hope is not in today. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the United States of America. Our hope is not in returning culture to the way it was way back when. Because guess what? It wasn't that great then either. Because there's always been sinners and there's always been sin and there's always been fallenness in this world. It proves the Bible true because we are looking for the consummation of the kingdom of God in the return of Christ. The fact that any of these good things exist now is the grace of God working through the good influence of those who do know the Lord. But we look forward to the day when it will all be made right. And until then... The kingdom of God's impact on this world is immeasurable, it's tangible, and it's real despite unbelievers. They get to share the shade of our branches. So the point about this parable (coughs) is it has, and I really apologize for my struggles this morning, but this is about you and me. This is about you. This is about the church. Now, it, it was it was spoken to Jews. It was spoken to Israel. But there's direct application here for the church. It's for you and me. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, 
If Jesus is your king, it's about you and what God is doing and going to do through you, through us, for his kingdom, to grow his kingdom until his return. It's a parable that when Jesus explained it to his disciples, would have encouraged them to know that no matter what happens, they don't have to live defeated and simply waiting for Jesus to come back. And let me just say a word about that as it relates to this church, as it relates to Bethlehem Baptist Church. Because for some time now, and let me just get real with you for a second, for some time now, and this was articulated on Wednesday night, the morale, the outlook about the future here has been low. It's been negative. And humanly speaking, I see why. I get that. I get that as well as anyone. But I ask you this. If God can take 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem and change the world, why can't today be a small beginning for Bethlehem Baptist Church? Why can't today be a a small beginning for us and not people waiting for the doctor to come in and cut off the life support? Why can't it? Where is our faith? Where is our trust that God is in control? Not simply saying that we know God's in control. No, where's our real trust in that? And why are we simply talking about increasing the membership and increasing our offering and not talking about our hearts? Because do you really think those 120 people grew and changed the world through strategy? Beloved, we need to do what they were doing when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were all in one place, Acts says. And what had they been doing when they were all in one place? They were united in prayer. We need to be together and we need to be united in prayer. And what else? Once the Holy Spirit came, they were, Acts 2.42, devoting themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. That's the preaching of the Word. They were devoted to the Word of God. We have to be committed to prayer and to the Word of God, beloved. And I think any objective outsider, and you might get mad at me for saying this, I think any objective outsider would seriously question whether or not the membership of Bethlehem Baptist Church is. Jesus didn't wait for people to come to Him. He went. The disciples didn't wait for people to come to them. They went. They lived as those sent. We must live sent into this world. We've got to put our lives on the line. We we wait for Jesus while we wait for His kingdom to come. We at the same time have to remember that we are citizens of that kingdom and we are always on mission in this world. We've got to trust in the Lord and what He has told us to do and not wait for something to happen. We've got to remember that in Christ we are guaranteed to win even if in earthly terms we lose. We may be small, but you want to talk about small? It was a Nazarene carpenter who took on the sins of the world at Calvary. A Nazarene carpenter who became like a slave and fulfilled all righteousness and went to the cross to save his people from their sins. And he was died and he was buried. And the seed went into the ground. The tomb as it were. And on the third day he rose from the grave. And his kingdom which started small has seen prolific growth. Large size. 
and expansive influence. Why can't we be even a little part of that? I refuse to submit to human analysis of the church. And it starts with my heart, and it starts with your heart. And that's really the point of the second parable too. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And again here Jesus poses a rhetorical question. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? This time it's leaven which we see mentioned a lot in Scripture. I mean, leaven is all over the Bible. Most of the time it symbolizes the influence of evil, the influence of sin. But here, Jesus uses it <coughs> to illustrate the influence of the kingdom of God. So what's the significance? What's the meaning? Well, what is leaven? Leaven is this fermented substance which when it's mixed with bread dough, spreads throughout it and causes it to what? To rise, to, to bubble up, to expand. When we took the Lord's Supper here, I guess, what, two weeks ago? We used unleavened bread. Why? Because there, the, the, the leaven represents sin, like it did in the Passover. But, but here, it's a positive thing. And the idea here is that this woman takes this leaven and hides it in three pecks of flour. That's about 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. And if you're a bread lover like I am, you know that a buttery yeast roll is better than a dry, flat cracker. Right? The point being, because of what this woman did, over time the leaven made this dough something that was far better than it had been. So what's the application here? The flour is the world. The flour is the world. The leaven is the kingdom. And right now it's hidden. The kingdom of God is in the world. Later in Luke, we're going to see him say the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in the world. But here it's hidden. Mixed in, but hidden. And we wait for it to be fully revealed. We wait for it. It's going to happen. There's going to be a day when it's all leavened. Leavened with the word of God. Leavened with the life of God. Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for what? For the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. <clears throat> In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now let me boil that down. This world longs for a Savior. Most of the world doesn't realize it. Most of creation doesn't realize it, but we're longing for a Savior. Why? Because we're enslaved to sin. We don't realize it because we're enslaved to sin. Enslaved to fallenness. Enslaved to corruption. But when the Lord returns, the kingdom... Uh, the kingdom leaven that's already mixed into the world will come to full rise and sin will be done away with. Fallenness will be a thing of the past. Corruption will be no more. And those who have given 
their lives to the one who gave his life on the cross will enjoy the freedom. The freedom of the glory that will come to all of the children of God. Will you enjoy that freedom, beloved? Jesus said in John 3, 3 that to even see the kingdom of God, you must be born from above. Born of God. The Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Does Christ reside in you this morning? If He doesn't, or if you are the least bit unsure, I invite you to come forward this morning and I will be glad to talk to you about that. If you are born of God. This morning, the Holy Spirit speaks the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven to you. Are you living with kingdom intentionality? Are you, in the words of Christ, in the words of Paul, the aroma of life leading to life? Are you waiting for something to happen? Or are you trusting Christ with faithfulness that needs that leads to obedience, that leads to active obedience? Are you doing that? Obedience, beloved, will take you into the world where you won't be comfortable. Obedience, faithfulness, will require you to trust in Jesus more than worry about what will happen to you if you trust in Jesus. Faithfulness, trust in the King, and it will put you in a position to see the plant grow, to see the kingdom grow, to see those who don't know Christ be influenced by the kingdom of God. Will you be the leaven of God? Influencing this fallen world, reaching sinners with the gospel? Will you be the leaven of God with your testimony? You living righteously. You personally reaching people with the gospel. You living by and walking by and exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. That must be our desire. If that's not our mission, we should all go home. Why? Because our ambition is to be pleasing to Him in all respects. Because He's worthy. We must live sent. We must live sent. Trust in the King. Repent, believe, follow Him, and enjoy the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's pray. Father, there are many who profess you. There are far fewer who are possessed by you. I pray that by your grace and mercy you might penetrate the dead hearts of sinners even today so as to make them alive that they might respond to you with living and obedient faith that they might turn to your son Jesus Christ and honor him as the king help us to do that father as we live and breathe to be citizens of your kingdom living sent for your glory and the glory of your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray In the power of the Spirit. Amen.